Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 29, 2014. We're about to present our 19th installment on Paul's Epistle to the Romans. This one subtitled Christian Disagreement. Before I begin, I'd like to say a few things. This Sunday at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time, we're going to launch a new program called Christiania Europe. Tentatively, it will run twice monthly on Sunday afternoons, Sunday afternoons here in the States, Sunday evening in Europe, where it's, well, where it's um, intended audiences. Sven Longshanks will be our co-host. I will announce it on a Christiania website tomorrow, and I apologize for being late to do so. I, I have far too many tasks since trying to settle in here in Florida. Tomorrow, on Saturday night, I will be discussing 2C line from the perspective of the appendix entitled The Devil and Satan, which is found in the Christiania New Testament. While the program will be something of a recapitulation, I will also attempt to explain why Pragmatic Genesis, why the outlook I presented in Pragmatic Genesis is broader on several topics than the appendix of the Christianian New Testament. One day soon I hope to get Pragmatic Genesis organized and into writer, writing. My detractors love to say, somehow, I don't get this one, that I am not two seed line in the sense of traditional Christian identity. They are right, but they are right for all the wrong reasons. I would assert that I am indeed two seed line, far beyond the narrow outlook of my detractors, many of whom are just too stupid to understand much of my scriptural exegesis, either too stupid or what is more likely the case is that they are blinded by an agenda of bastardization. They are not two seed line. They are three, four, five, six seed line, as if Yahweh created other races that are not of Adam. Indeed, Yahweh did not. I'm two seed line. Those clowns, that they are two plus seed line, perhaps, three seed line, ten seed line, twenty seed, it doesn't matter. But the God of the Bible, he only created one race. And in the book of Genesis, there are only two trees. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. There are only two trees which stand as allegories for races of people. I'm two seed line. There's something else. The Epistles of Paul, Romans Part 19, Christian Disagreement. There is such a thing as Christian disagreement. But in the end, Christians won't disagree. In Romans chapter 12, Paul explains to a great degree how Christians should treat one another. Of course, when we read these passages from Paul's letters, 
when we read these passages from Paul's letters, we must remember that he is only talking about the members of the body, those who are Israel. None of this has anything to do with aliens. I'm going to read much of Romans chapter 12 as a reminder. Just as in one body we have many members, but the members all do not have the same function. In this manner, we are many in one body with Christ and each one members of one another. But having varying gifts according to the favor which is given to us, whether interpretation of prophecy according to the proportion of faith, or service in a ministry, or he that is teaching in education, or he that encourages in encouragement, he that is sharing with simplicity, he that is leading with diligence, he showing mercy with cheerfulness, love without acting, abhorring wickedness, cleaving to goodness, brotherly love, affection towards one another, in honor, preferring one another with diligence, not hesitating, fervent in spirit, serving the prince, rejoicing in expectation, persevering in afflictions, firmly persisting in prayer, sharing in the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality, of course, only towards the saints, towards the other members of the body. Speak well to those who persecute you, those of the other members of the body. Speak well and do not curse. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Lament with those who are lamenting. Being of the same mind towards one another. Therefore, all of these things which Paul says are only directed at admonishing our behavior in relation to other members of the body. If you're not a Christian Israelite, you're not a member of that body. If you're not a descendant, a pure descendant of the children of Israel, you're not a member of that body. These words do not apply to you, and Christians are not obligated to treat you in the same manner in which they treat other members of the body, preferring one another with diligence and not hesitating to do so. To no one, I'm sorry, being of the same mind towards one another, not thinking of lofty things, but accommodating oneself to those that are humble. Do not be wise on account of yourselves, to no one, meaning to no other member of the body, returning evil in place of evil, having noble intentions in the presence of all men, if possible from yourselves, being at peace with all men. Not taking vengeance yourselves, beloved. Rather, you must give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will requit, says Yahweh. Now, if your enemy were to hunger, feed him with scraps. If he thirsts, give him drink. For doing this, you will heat coals of fire upon his head. You must not be overcome by evil. Rather, overcome evil with that which is good. What Paul had taught in Romans 12 about brotherly love and about vengeance is summarized in the law 
in a single verse from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which says, Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. Like Paul's words, these words in Leviticus only apply to the children of Israel, the children of thy people. To hell with everybody else. Paul's words, they have the same weight. They only apply to the children of Israel, members of the body. In Romans chapter 9, we saw that Paul reckoned Israel according to the flesh. In Paul reckoned Israel according to the flesh. If you're a bastard, if you're of another race, you're not Israel. Because Israel is reckoned according to the flesh. You're not a member of the body of Christ. You cannot expect the same treatment that Christians should treat. Christians should not treat aliens as they treat their brethren. They have no obligation towards aliens at all if they're not of the body according to the flesh. Like Paul's words, the words of Leviticus only apply to the children of Israel. In turn, Paul's words also fully agree with the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Now I say to you, not to oppose evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn for him also the other. And to him desiring for you to be judged and to receive your cloak, give up to him also your shirt. And whoever shall press you for one mile, go with him too. Give to him asking to you, and you should not turn away from him wishing to borrow from you. The words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount are also only applicable to the children of Israel. Since only the children of Israel fit into the context of the sermon where it speaks of the law and mercy in relation to the people to whom Christ is speaking. Non-Israelites do not fit into that picture at all. According to these words of Christ, we overcome evil with good by doing for our brethren things that they may not do for us, or by giving to them even more than they asked for when they required something of us. Therefore, there is no disparity whatsoever between the teachings of Paul, the gospel of Christ, or the law of Yahweh concerning these things. But in Paul's discourse, in the discourse of Christ, and in the law of Yahweh, these things are only applicable to the children of Israel. They cannot be used as a device against us by wolves who enter into the sheepfold because we have no obligation towards wolves. They are not of the children of thy people. In Romans chapter 13, after Paul speaks on the relationship of Christians to government, 
he returns to the topic of how Christians should treat one another. And he says in verse 8, You owe to no one anything except to love one another. And Paul is talking about debt. He's advising Christians not to be in debt, to repay your debts. You owe to no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Indeed, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not lust. And any other commandment is summarized in this saying, You shall love him near to you as yourself. Love for him near to you who does not practice evil. Therefore, fulfilling of the law is love. As we explained when we discussed that chapter, Paul is not saying that love replaces the keeping of the law. Rather, Paul is saying that love is the keeping of the law. For that very reason, Paul evoked those most familiar commandments which are from the law as admonishments to keep them. This has caused to further discuss some aspects of Paul's admonitions concerning government in Romans chapter 13, aspects which we did not take the opportunity to, to discuss when we first presented that chapter in the last installment of this series. The subjection of Israel to tyrannical governments as a punishment ordained from Yahweh does not mean that the Israelite who knows the law and the word of God should not keep it. Government is therefore not an excuse to forsake the commandments of Christ. Daniel the prophet is a perfect example of this. When Daniel found favor with the Babylonians, as it is described in Daniel chapter 1. He and certain others were apportioned victuals, food, from the table of the king. However, Daniel and his fellows turned down the delicacies of the Babylonians in favor of a diet of vegetables, so that they would not violate the Hebrew dietary laws. Daniel and his fellows were challenged in respect of this, and they prevailed through a demonstration of the efficacy of the law. Later, when Daniel was found refusing to submit to the Babylonian state-decreed religion, he and his friends were tried, and they overcame that trial through their faith by the hand of Yahweh. So they did not forsake, even though the word of God bade them, in Jeremiah specifically, bade them to submit themselves to the Babylonians. They still did not forsake the law of God in their submission to the Babylonians. And when that refusal to forsake the law of God clashed with Babylonian dictates and Babylonian customs, Daniel and his fellows, cleaving to the law of God, prevailed. While Daniel prophesied many wonderful things, his life itself is a prophecy 
and a model for us until this very day. There are, however, other such examples as Daniel, such as the statement made by the apostles when they refused to desist from preaching the gospel, which is recorded in Acts chapter 5, where they said we ought to obey God rather than man. Paul said that rulers are not a terror to good works, and he cited the examples of the law in relation to what those good works are. While it is necessary for Christians to endure this trial of the governments of man, if they put their God first, they too shall overcome this trial and be rewarded as Daniel was. He is our model. It is not that rulers do not contradict the law of Yahweh. They certainly do. But Daniel and his fellows had no fear of the consequences when they remained obedient to Yahweh. Today's governments are becoming every bit as arrogant as the Pharaoh of Egypt was before the Exodus. And today the children of Israel await a similar deliverance. And they shall have it. In Romans chapter 12, Paul explained how it is that Christians should love one another. In Romans chapter 13, Paul explained that keeping the law is love for the people of Christ. That's how we demonstrate our love for our brother, by first keeping the law of our God. Finally, here in Romans chapter 14, Paul discusses minor points of disagreement which Christians may have over things which may have been wrong to do in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. When Israel was bound by the sacrificial rites, and the judgments of the law, but which are actually a part of those Levitical and sacrificial laws which were done away with in Christ. From the first eight verses of the chapter, Romans 14, which we're about to present, we see that these points of disagreement include the eating of meat sacrificed to idols and the celebration of Sabbaths and certain feasts. Then from verse 9, Paul says, for this reason, Christ died and lived, that he may be master of both the dead and the living. Now why do you judge your brother? Or then, why do you despise your brother? These are clearly things which Christians, I'm sorry, there are clearly things which Christians must agree upon. And those things are outlined in the commandments and in the gospel of Christ. However, there are things which Christians may disagree upon, and with these, we should not seek to cause divisions. With this, we'll commence with Romans chapter 14. Verse 1. Now he who is weak in the faith, you should not receive for the arguing of decisions. If your brother's faith is not as strong as your own, if he perceives some things differently than you do, you should not have communion with you should not have communion with him simply for the sake of arguing with him. Becoming friendly with someone for the purpose of arguing with them is pretense and it should be avoided. Of course, we must bear in mind 
reading these admonitions of Paul, which we're about to read, that early Christians did not have some of the problems regarding racial diversity and universalism that we have today. Therefore, these comments that I'm making in relation to these verses and Paul's comments here in Romans 14 are only made in respect to the body of Christ. We have to keep that in mind. Don't let the perverts pervert the context of Scripture. The, the subject has not changed from verse 12. Paul, all of these things, through ver, through, uh, from chapter 12, all of these things, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, all of these things relate only to the body of Christ. And it is robbery for us to think otherwise. Therefore, today we must consistently bear that in mind when we read these passages individually. If your brother is gathering wolves and goats to the sheepfold, you cannot have communion with him at all. You should treat him as one of the wolves and one of the goats. Now, he who is weak in faith, you should not receive for the arguing of decisions. While one trusts to eat all things, yet another being weak eats vegetables. There was a dispute among first century Christians as to whether or not they may eat profane foods. This argument has nothing to do with things which are deemed by the law to be unclean. Because profane and unclean are two different categories. Paul of Tarsus should not be blamed for organized, organized Christianity's failure to recognize those categories. Paul tells us that his words here relate to profane foods in verse 14 of this chapter. But the popular translations wrongly interpret the important word in that verse. And we will speak about it at length. Here Paul is not comparing one sort of meat to another, but rather in the discussion of food in general, he is contrasting meat to vegetables. And that is fully elucidated by his words in this chapter in verse 21. The Greek word for profane is often rendered as common, and that's fine. The same word can mean profane or common. In Acts chapter 10, we see Peter declare that I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The words common and unclean are contrasted by Peter three times in Acts chapters 10 and 11, and they refer to two different things. They refer to two different categories. There are foods which are profane because they were treated inappropriately in accordance with God's law. 
However, things which are deemed to be unclean by God's law are not food. They should never be considered as food, not by Christian Israelites. It doesn't make a difference what the squat monsters eat and call food. Anything to them is food. In 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 10, we see more clearly than this chapter of Romans that the dispute over profane foods related to pagan temple offerings. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul said, eat all that is being sold in a market, by no means making an inquiry on account of conscience. But if anyone may say to you, this is a temple offering, do not eat, on account of that person making the disclosure and the conscience. In the ancient world, unless one had his own estate, his own farm, his own parcel of land from which to procure meat, one was forced to purchase meat from the markets. However, the markets were supplied by, and the markets were often adjacent to, the pagan temples where the animals were first sacrificed before they were parceled and the meat was sold. Because the meat markets, the meat in the markets, was sacrificed to pagan idols, it was considered, the meat was considered profane under the law of Yahweh and by early Christians. Those temples, the temples of the ancient pagan Greeks and Romans, also served as the restaurants and the lounges of the ancient world. And that's evident in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 where Paul talks about men sitting in an idol's temple and eating because they served as restaurants as well. Verse 3. He who eats must not despise him that eats not. And he who eats not must not judge him that eats. Indeed, Yahweh has taken him to himself who are you to be judging another servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he shall stand. Indeed, the prince is able to establish him. And the, mass, the, the majority text says that God is able to establish him, as well as some of the older manuscripts. In the English language of the 16th century, the word Meat meant food in general. It did not refer merely to the flesh of animals. Meat referred to bread. It referred to anything that was edible. Unfortunately, today, this has an adverse effect upon the general understanding of Scripture because of the way the word is now understood. The word means something different and more specific today than it meant 
to the King James translators. In the King James Version of the Bible, meat is food in general. It does not refer only to flesh. The Greek word, wherever meat occurs, usually is broma, and broma is food. Broma is not only flesh, or specifically flesh. Broma is food in general. Paul tells us here that no Israelite shall fail by reason of eating profane foods. And therefore, Christians should not condemn one another for that reason. The words of Christ from Mark chapter 7 from the Christogenian New Testament. And when he had entered into a house away from the crowd, his students asked him the parable. And he says to them, Thusly also are you without understanding? Do you not perceive that everything from outside entering into the man is not able to defile him, because it does not enter into his heart, but into the belly, and it goes out into the latrine, cleansing all foods. The word is broma. Now the King James Version and other translations have the word meat in that passage of Mark 7, cleansing all meats. And modern Christians argue that, therefore, Christians can eat swine or catfish or shellfish or other unclean things. But the Greek word broma means that which is eaten, food. If flesh were meant, the Greek word would have been kreos. Kreos is flesh, meat, a piece of meat. Broma is a general term for food. It refers to something which is customarily eaten. Kreos is a specific word for flesh, and the Greeks used it only to refer to meat. So it is evident that in Mark chapter 7, Yahshua Christ was talking about food generally. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And not of meat specifically. And especially not of unclean things. Because unclean things cannot be considered food if they are not something which was normally eaten. Now Paul, being a Hebrew, Peter, in Acts chapter 10, three years after the crucifixion of Christ, said that he had never eaten anything common or unclean. Now the Christogenia New Testament, in reference to food, usually translates that word for common as profane. So profane and common, referring to food, are really from the same Greek word. So that's okay. Common or unclean. Common referring to food. Unclean referring to things prohibited in the law of God to be consumed. And things which were in the law of God 
prohibited to be consumed, were not considered food. I'll give an example. The Chinese, they eat roaches. They eat worms. They eat all sorts of things which we Americans or we Europeans would think, well, unless maybe you're French, would think are disgusting and would never eat. To the Chinese, roaches are food. To, to Americans or Europeans, roaches are disgusting pests, and they are certainly not food. So, in an American or European context, when you're talking about food, nobody who's accustomed to the ways of those countries, of those places, are going to think of roaches when you talk about food. When somebody talked about swine in first century Palestine, the apostles did not think of it as food. Now, the Romans themselves ate swine. And some of the Greeks ate swine. Others of the Greeks rejected it. But to the Hebrews, swine is not food. So Paul is not talking about swine here. He's talking about food. He's not talking about unclean things here. He's talking about things which are common. Paul goes off on a, on, on, away from the food topic momentarily to talk about feasts and Sabbaths. And he says in verse 5, while one distinguishes a day contrary to another day, yet another distinguishes every day, each in his own mind must be fully assured. The Roman calendar did not have weeks as we know them. But rather, for each month, it had a system of day markers, which were based on moon phases. The day markers split the month into groups of days, called calends, nones, and ides. Additionally, days of the month were marked by the Roman high priest with letters that designated their religious and their civil significance. These, there were days prescribed when it was either prohibited or admissible to do things such as hold public assemblies, conduct sacrifices, initiate actions in courts of law, make official transactions, or for other activities. Roman society was regulated by these days according to the pagan Roman religion. Under such a system, it was certainly difficult for Christians, especially Greek and Roman Christians, to live by a separate calendar. However, Christians must have maintained the seven-day Sabbath cycle to some degree, because even though at that time Rome was still an officially pagan state, the seven-day cycle became a part of the Roman calendar in 321 A.D., it was not part of the Roman calendar before then. It may be determined from Paul's statement here in Romans 14.5 that already at this early time, Christians were not all celebrating 
the Old Testament Sabbaths and feast days with any certain regularity. However, Paul's statement is deeper than that simple observation. Paul's choices do not include the celebration of no Sabbath. But if every day of one's life is devoted to one's brethren and the building of the kingdom of God, then one indeed is distinguishing every day. To the contrary, even today many Christians are only Sabbath day Christians and seem to forget about Christ for the other six days. He who is observing the day observes it with authority. We'll talk about that phrase shortly. In verse 6 here, there's an interpolation. In the majority text, and in some later manuscripts, and the interpolation also appears in the King James Version. And the interpolation says, and he not observing the day with authority observes it not. The King James says, he not observing the day, to God observes it not, or to the Lord observes it not, or something similar. Those words do not belong in Scripture. They do not appear in any Greek manuscript before the 9th century A.D. Those words do not appear in any of the major Greek manuscripts preceding the 9th century A.D. With that interpolation, Paul seems to be actively approving of foregoing the Sabbath, but it is not in the original manuscripts. Verse 6 should say, He who is observing the day observes it with authority, and he who eats, eats with authority, for he gives thanks to God, and he who does not eat with authority eats not, and he gives thanks to God. And again, in reference to eating, Paul seeks to distinguish those Christians who chose not to eat meat sacrificed to the pagan idols of Rome from those who held that sacrifice to be of no esteem and who ate the meat anyway. And this aspect of Paul's words becomes evident later in this discourse. The occurrences of the Greek word kurios in this verse, Romans 14.6, where the King James Version has, to the Lord. The occurrences of the Greek word kurios are not accompanied with the definite article. Therefore, in the Christogenian New Testament, the word is treated as an adjective. That's the basic use of the word. The primary definition of the word kurios is an adjective, and we will define it shortly. So in this verse in the Christogenian New Testament, the words appear, the, the words with authority appear in its place, since the occurrences of curios in this passage are all in the dative case. In contrast, in Romans 14, 8, 
There are three occurrences of the word kurios, and they are all accompanied with the definite article. Therefore, they are substantives. A substantive is a group of words used as a noun. The article and the word kurios are a noun in those passages, and therefore we can write Lord. Here in Romans 14.6, we cannot write Lord because the word kurios, where it appears three times in this passage, or four if you want to count the King James interpolation, they are not substantives. They are not nouns. They are adjectives. The primary use of the word kurios was completely ignored by the King James Version translators and all who had followed them. That the word is first a simple adjective in Greek. It is only a title when it is used as a substantive. Liddell and Scott have in their entry for the word kurios of persons having power or authority over to be lord or master of. As an absolute, it simply means having authority. When it's not used of persons, but when it's used of things, especially decrees and things like that, laws, it means authoritative, decisive, dominant, authorized, ratified, valid. When the word kurios is used of time, it can mean fixed, ordained, appointed, legitimate, regular, proper. When the word kurios is used of words, it can mean authorized or vernacular. Then, in its second entry for the word kurios, the Liddell and Scott lexicon has, as a substantive, it can mean lord or master. It's not a substantive anywhere in Romans 14.6. He who observes a day observes it with authority because the observations in the law. He who eats, eats with authority because Israel is freed from the law. He who does not eat with authority eats not because he perceives that eating profane foods gives credence to idolatry. So he eats not and he gives thanks to Yahweh. It's a matter of conscience. Paul goes on to say in verse 7, not one of us lives to himself, and not one dies to himself. Therefore, if either we were to live in the prince we live, there it could say in the Lord we live, that's fine. Because the word is a substantive, it's a noun in Greek. Or if we were to die, in the prince we die. So if we were to live, or if we were, we were to die, we are the princes, or the lords. For this reason, Christ died and lived, that he may be master of both the dead and the living. Paul's teaching here is in full accord with that of Peter, 
who said in his first epistle in 1 Peter chapter 4, Therefore, with Christ suffering in the flesh, you also be equipped for the same mind, because he who suffers in the flesh ceases from wrongdoing, for which no longer in the desires of men, but in the will of Yahweh, he should live the remaining time in the flesh. And this is what Paul meant by living in the prince. Peter is defining it for us. For enough of the time is past, perpetuating the will of the heathens, having walked in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revelries, and lawless idolatries. While they are astonished, they blaspheme that you're not running together in the same excess profligacy. They shall give an account to him who holds ready to judge the living and the dead. Indeed, for this also, the dead, to the dead, the good message has been announced, that they may indeed be judged like men in the flesh, but live like Yahweh in the spirit. Peter's a little more elaborate, but his teaching there is encapsulated in what Paul teaches here. The children of Israel belong to Yahweh their God. He redeemed them, so he owns them. There is no other choice in life or in death. From Hosea chapter 13, from verse 14, the word of God says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. From Isaiah chapter 52, from verse 3. For thus saith Yahweh, ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. For this reason, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 20, Indeed, you have been purchased for a price. So then, you honor Yahweh in your body. In Romans 14.4, Paul asked, Who are you to be judging another servant? The children of Israel, having been redeemed by Yahweh through Christ, are indebted to be servants of Christ. Speaking of servitude, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul said in verse 22, For he who is called a bondman in the prince is a freedman of the prince. Likewise, he who is called free is a bondman of Christ. You have been purchased for a price. You should not become slaves of men. The children of Israel, having sold themselves into sin, indeed became the servants of men, as it says in Isaiah chapter 42, from verse 18. Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind, that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I have sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but thou observest not opening the ears, but he hears not. Yahweh is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. 
But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes. They are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey and none delivers. For a spoil and none saith restore. Ancient Israel would have maintained their liberty in service to Yahweh their God. Captivity was a result of their disobedience. This concept has not changed. Only now it is expressed in different terms. Christians can only have and keep true liberty by serving Christ. All of the children of Israel are servants of Yahweh, and all will ultimately comply as Paul illustrates this idea in the next two verses. Now, why do you judge your brother? Or then, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Yahweh. Indeed, and, and some manuscripts have Christ there, so that's what it says in the King James Version. Indeed, it is written, I live, says the prince, that to me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess to God. The Greek word for confess can mean to confess in full, to make full acknowledgments. In verse 11, Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. In the context of the citation, the verse must be interpreted interpreted to mean that every knee of the children of Israel shall bow, and every tongue of the children of Israel shall confess to God. It can't be taken beyond that scope, and here Paul is still talking only about the members of the body. From Isaiah chapter 45, from verse 17, But Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. For thus saith Yahweh that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he has established it. He created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not under the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations, referring to those Israelites who survived and escaped the Assyrians and Babylonians from the places to which they were brought ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of the graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yeah, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I Yahweh? And there is no God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, meaning the dispersed of Israel. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness, 
and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, In Yahweh have I righteousness and strength. Even to him men shall come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Isaiah 45:23, and a statement that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear can only refer to the children of Israel, every one of them. All the seed of Israel. Romans 14, 12. So then, each of us, meaning each Israelite, each of us, each of us members of the body of Christ, which is reckoned according to the flesh, each of us shall give to Yahweh an account concerning himself. Now no longer should we judge one another, but rather determine this. Do not put an obstacle in the way of a brother or a trap. The Greek word scandalon is trap here. From where we get the English word scandal, it is literally a trap. Often in the King James Version, it's rendered as a cause for offense or simply as an offense. In the Old Testament, things which caused one to violate Yahweh's laws were sometimes called traps. We read in Joshua chapter 23 of the nations of the Canaanites whom the children of Israel failed to exterminate that they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes. Things which caused one to keep the law hypocritically were also seen as traps. Therefore, in Psalm 69, we see a prophecy concerning those in Judah who would reject Christ. Let their table become a snare for them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Paul cited this very passage in Romans chapter 11 to show that the law of God would not benefit those who rejected Christ, but that instead it would entrap them because it would prove their hypocrisy. There is a similar analogy in Jeremiah chapter 5, where it says from verse 25, your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withholden good things from you. For among my people are found wicked men. They lay in wait as he that sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so are their houses full of deceit. Therefore they are become great and waxen rich. The law is not the trap. The breaking of the law or a hypocritical keeping of a part of the law, that is one falling into a trap. The transgression, the trap causes the transgression. The transgression is the trap, not the law. Verse 14. 
I know and have confidence by Prince Joshua that nothing of itself is profane except to he who considers anything to be profane. To him, it is profane. And that word three times translated profane may have been rendered as common. Three times the word profane here is coinous. It's an adjective. And the verbal form of the word coinal is to consider or to deem profane or common. Strong's number 2839 and 2840, the adjective and the verb. According to Liddell and Scott, the adjective coinous is common, shared in common, common to all the people, common, public, general, of meats, common or profane. The verb means to make common, to communicate, to defile, profane. There's, a, there's an English word that's derived from coinous because it's an item of common currency. The word is coin. There's another word derived from coinous in relation to the Greek language. It signified the commonly spoken Greek language as opposed to the individual regional dialects, and it was called Koin Greek. Koin Greek means common Greek. This word is koinous. It's the same word. Foods which are things that are declared to be edible in the Old Testament. If it's not declared to be edible in the Old Testament, it's not food. And it doesn't count here. It's not being considered here. It's not part of the argument. Foods, which are things that are declared to be edible in the Old Testament, having been sanctioned in the law by Yahweh, were able to be sanctified at the Hebrew altar and table. These foods cannot be considered unclean. And the things which were deemed unclean by the law could never be sanctified at the Hebrew altar. Therefore, unclean things could never be considered as food. Those are two separate categories. What's common and what's unclean are two separate categories that should not be confused. In Acts chapter 10, the Apostle Peter uses the phrase common and unclean in reference to food from Acts chapter 10, from verse 13. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Two different categories. And the voice spoke to him. Again, the second time, what God has cleansed, that call not thou common. Now note that Yahweh did not make a reference to cleansing the unclean, which Peter mentioned, but only what God has cleansed, that call not thou common. Things which were not sanctioned in the Old Testament 
yet which other people may have been accustomed to eating, such as swine or shellfish. These things were certainly considered unclean. They were never considered to be food, and they should be rejected as food today. No cleansing ritual could sanctify them, and therefore they were not merely profane or common, but they were unclean and never to be considered for consumption. Now, things that were considered foods that were sanctioned as edible in the Old Testament, but which were handled or killed in a manner contrary to Old Testament law, and especially meats which were sacrificed on the altars of idols. These things were considered common or profane. It is those things which Paul is addressing here in Romans chapter 14, and which he also addressed in 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 10, and 11. This is a distinction which the King James Version often failed to make in translation, such as here in Romans 14, in verse 14, where three times the word coyness is unclean and should instead have been translated as profane or common, because coyness does not mean unclean. Therefore, the King James Version has caused much confusion in relation to this topic. And it's not alone. The Geneva Bible of 1560 made the same mistake. There's another word for unclean, the word Peter used in Acts chapters 10 and 11. The word is akathartus. Paul also used the word akathartus. But Paul never said, that you should eat anything that was acathartis. Strong's number 169. Paul never told the Romans or the Corinthians to eat unclean things, because unclean things are not food in the first place. Rather, he was telling them not to worry about eating common or profane things. Since if they had been mishandled or sacrificed to idols, it really did not matter. The idols were not to be accounted by Christians. From the Wisdom of Sirach, chapter 34, verse 4. Of an unclean thing, what can be cleansed? And from that thing which is false, what truth can come? In other words, nothing true can come from that which is false, and nothing can be cleansed which is unclean in the law of God. To repeat verse 14 with these differences in mind, Paul said, I know and have confidence by Prince Joshua that nothing is of itself profane. That's what Christ said in Mark chapter 7, talking about food, that no food by itself is profane because it goes into the belly and out into the latrine. Food is cleansed by the belly 
if you put things into your belly that are not food, don't expect them to be cleansed. I know and have confidence by Prince Joshua that nothing is of itself profane except that he who considers anything to be profane, to him it is profane. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul asks, What then do I say? That that which is sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? If Christians esteem the idol, then they make something out of the idol. If Christians do not esteem the idol, then the idol is nothing, and idolatry has no power over them. Therefore, later in the same chapter, in relation to the same thing, Paul says from verse 25, eat all that is being sold to the market, by no means making an inquiry on account of conscience, for the earth is Yahweh's and the fullness of it. Now, if one of the unbelieving invites you and you wish to go, eat all that is being set before you, making no means, by no means making an inquiry on account of conscience. But if anyone may say to you, this is a temple offering, do not eat, on account of that person making disclosure and the conscience. But I mean not that conscience of yourself, but that of the other. For what reason is my freedom decided by another's conscience? Under the law, the children of Israel could not even obtain meat from a foreign market. I'm talking about the Old Testament kingdom. They could not eat the flesh of animals slain by aliens. If an animal was slaughtered in a manner contrary to Scripture, it was profane, and for that reason could not be eaten under the law. What is little understood is that there were also laws in place governing the use of other agricultural produce. In the law, there are commands concerning first fruit and heave offerings of such produce. And the offerings had to be made so that the produce could be sanctified. Paul hints at this where he says in Romans chapter 11, if the first fruit be holy, then the lump is also holy, meaning the mass, the rest of the fruit. In that manner, the children of Israel should only have eaten produce that they themselves had grown and made the appropriate offerings for. And the importation of such products for consumption was a transgression described in Hosea chapter 2. Christians understand that being freed from the judgments of the law, they have liberty in Christ, something which was mentioned in other contexts by James, Peter, and Paul. Christians are under the mercy of Christ, and if they do eat something which is profane, that alone cannot diminish the salvation which they have in Christ so long as they have not partaken in any idolatry for which they could expect to be punished. Purchasing meat in a market or eating meat at a banquet and not having a concern for its origin 
one has not sinned and one's conscience is clear. However, if it is openly known that the meat was sacrificed to an idol, the Christian should abstain from it. Not necessarily for his own sake, but for the sake of those of his brethren who, being present, may be offended. Leaving one's brother to be offended by breaking the law, one sets a trap for his brother or puts an obstacle in his path, just as we have seen described in the Old Testament. A trap is something that forces an Israelite to transgress, or something which persuades or tricks him into transgression. Verse 15, But if because of food your brother is distressed, no longer do you walk in accordance with charity or love. You must not with your food ruin that person for whose benefit Christ died. Therefore do not make him speak ill of your good. Indeed, the kingdom of Yahweh is not eating and drinking, but justice and peace and delight in the Holy Spirit. Once again, the Greek word broma is that which is eaten, food, and therefore it is food throughout this chapter. It's food throughout the Christogenian New Testament. Another word referring specifically to animal flesh as meat is kreos. Therefore, the word kreos is flesh, as it appears here in Romans chapter 14, verse 21. And it's also flesh in a lengthier discourse on this same subject, which is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 at verse 13. Here's what Paul said to the Corinthians in that chapter. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know because all the knowledge we have, the knowledge inflates and love builds. If one, is supposed, if one supposes to have known anything, not yet does he know according as there is need to know. But if one loves Yahweh, this he knows by him. Concerning then, the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the society, and that there is no other god except one. And even though, there are so-called gods, either in heaven or on earth, just as there are many gods and many lords. But to us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we for him, and one Prince, Yahshua Christ, whom are all things, and we through him. Yet not in all is that knowledge, but some, in the custom of the idol, until this time are nevertheless eating of that offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not bring us to terms with Yahweh. Neither do we have an advantage if we would eat, nor do we come short if we would not eat. But beware, lest in any way, by your license, this would become an obstacle to those who are weak. For if perhaps one should see you, who 
having knowledge, are in an idol's temple, reclining at a meal. Will not the conscience of him, being weak, be emboldened in regards to eating the things offered to idols? Then will he who is weak be ruined by your knowledge? The brother for whose sake Christ had been slain. Now in that manner, failing in regard for the brethren and striking their weak consciences towards Christ you fail. On which account, if meat, and here Paul means meat, the word is kreos, if meat offends my brother, I would not eat flesh for eternity, in order that my brother will not be offended. Paul is elucidating the fact that it is more important to keep the law and not to offend one's brother than it is to exercise one's Christian liberty. We who have knowledge know that the idol is nothing and we're hungry and we want to go eat. That may offend our brethren who don't understand the liberty that we have in Christ. So it's better that we keep the law, even though that is part of the law. Those ritual sacrifices, the commands concerning what is profane and what is not profane and what could be sanctified, all those things are the, the, the related to the, the, the ritual laws that are done away with, with the Levitical priesthood, and in Christ. Of course, unclean, unclean things that are not food are another matter. It is more important to keep the law and not to offend one's brother than it is to exercise one's Christian liberty. That's what Paul's explaining in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. On the other hand, if we see a brother disregard these particular laws, knowing that we have such liberty in Christ, we should not seek to condemn him. Some Christians would purposely not eat, believing that by not eating, they better please, that, that they please God more. Paul calls this group weak, weak in the faith. Other Christians may purposely eat, seeking to proclaim their liberty and their trust in Christ. Paul says that this group has no advantage in such eating. You don't flaunt your Christian liberty, in other words. Bear in mind that all of this is only in relation to the laws governing the handling of food, which are a part of the ritual laws that Israel had been released from in Christ. However, the commandment against idolatry is one of the moral laws of God which cannot fail. The dispute Paul addresses here is basically whether food purchased in a pagan market is permissible to Christians. Paul tells us, that it is, so long as we don't recognize the pagan idols. 
Obviously, from the context of these addresses, many Christians nevertheless took offense to the eating of such food. Christians may disagree on where to draw the line and what actually constitutes idolatry. Paul tells us where to draw the line in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he says at verse 14, on which account, my beloved ones, flee from idolatry. As to those who are prudent, I speak, you determine that which I say. The cup of eulogy which we bless, is it not fellowship of the blood of Christ? The wheat bread which we break, is it not fellowship of the body of Christ? Because one loaf, one body, we the many are, for we all partake from the one loaf. Behold, Israel, down through the flesh, that may have been translated Israel according to the flesh, because Israel is reckoned according to the flesh. Behold, Israel, according to the flesh, are not those who are eating the sacrifices, partners of the altar? Paul's talking about the dispersed Israelites who were pagans at this time. Only very few of them had been converted to Christianity and returned to God through Christ by this time. Most, the vast majority of them were still pagans. That's who Paul's talking about here. And they, those pagan nations of Europe, are Israel according to the flesh, the Romans, the Corinthians, the Macedonians, the Illyrians. Behold, Israel, according to the flesh, are not those who are eating the sacrifices partners of the altar. What then do I say that that which is sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything. Rather, that whatever the nation sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to Yahweh. Now, I do not wish for you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the prince and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the prince and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the prince to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? The idol is nothing, and the meat is nothing, except what we esteem it to be, as Paul said here in verse 14. Nothing is of itself profane, except to he who considers anything to be profane, to him it is profane. But we must draw the line at our table. If we partake with those who sacrifice the devils, then we cannot partake in Christ. Therefore, we must exclude pagans and aliens from our communion. And Paul expounds on this further in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, something that's beyond the scope of the presentation tonight. This is why Paul advised Christians that they may eat whatever food they desire, but if it is made evident that the food is sacrificed to an idol, that they should abstain. These disputes upon which Paul counseled these early Christians do indeed have valid application for Christians today. For instance, today we have Mexican, African, and Asian aliens working in our meat processing plants. 
fields, doing the slaughtering and all the preparation of our meat for market. Do Christians eat such meat? Furthermore, many of the restaurant workers are also aliens. So aliens are almost certain to have had a hand in the preparation of nearly any food item we may eat unless we are fortunate enough to raise our own food on our own estates and be able to prepare it ourselves. Very few of us can do that. Even worse, today there is a proliferation of meat products marked not only as kosher, but also as halal, H-A-L-A-L, halal. It might be pronounced halal. Who cares? Meat marked halal is dedicated to the idol of Islam before it is slaughtered. Otherwise, it cannot be marked halal. So this pagan dedication of our food, it's still going on. And that's really an antichrist designation. Do Christians eat that meat? And if they reject it, is halal meat really any worse than kosher meat, which is only kosher because some devil was paid to approve of it? Where do Christians draw the line? First century Christians disagreed on these things, as we see from, from Paul's discourse here in Romans and from Paul's discourse in Corinthians chapters 8, 10, and 11. But what Paul is telling us, which is more important, is that we should not distress or hypocritically judge our brethren if they partake or if they choose to abstain from such food. Likewise, Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 13, Do not be carried away with strange and diverse teachings, for the good heart is confirmed by favor, not foods, by which those who walk have no advantage. The prescripts of the Pharisees went far beyond the laws of Moses regarding food and its preparation, and we should not be trapped in them, as Paul told the Hebrews themselves. When and whether we should celebrate Sabbaths, is also a topic of the conversation here, and how we should do so, when and whether we should keep feasts, and how we should do so, when and whether we should consider any foods to be profane, and if we may eat them. From Paul's discourse here, we can see that these are all within the bounds of legitimate Christian disagreement. Of course, there are many other things we may add to the list as well. But disagreeing in respect of these things, we should not distress or alienate our brethren. Verse 18. He who in this is serving the anointed is acceptable to Yahweh and esteemed by men. So then, we should pursue those things of peace and those things for the building of one another, edification. Of course, verse 18 may have been read in part, he who is serving the Christ, 
rather than he who is serving the anointed. However, the Christian Israelite who is serving the anointed people of Christ is indeed serving Christ. And the Christian who seeks to serve Christ serves his people. So the terms are indeed interchangeable. Seeking to serve the body of Christ goes beyond the statutes and ordinances of the law. Of course, we cannot break Yahweh's moral laws encapsulated in the Ten Commandments and claim to be loving or serving our brethren. Neither can we claim to love our brother and cause him distress over these minor disagreements. We certainly should not condemn our brethren in regard to things which we may have done or may ourselves do, which Paul references here in verse 23. From Matthew chapter 18, For this reason, the kingdom of the heavens is compared to a man who is king, who had desired to take an account together with his servants. And upon beginning to take it, one had been brought to him, a debtor of 10,000 talents, a considerable sum. And not having to repay it, the master ordered him, the servant, to be sold, and his wife and children and everything, whatever he has, and to be repaid. Then falling down, the servant made obeisance to him, saying, Have patience with me, and I shall repay everything to you. Then being deeply moved, the master of that servant released him and forgave the loan for him. And departing, that servant found one of his fellow servants who owed a hundred denarii to him. And seizing him, he strangled him, saying, Repay anything you owe. Then falling down, his fellow servant exhorted him, saying, Have patience with me, and I shall repay you. But he did not desire it. Rather, departing, he cast him into prison until he would repay that which is owed. Therefore, seeing the things which happened, his fellow servants grieved exceedingly, and going, they explained to their own master all the things which happened. Then summoning him, his master says to him, Wicked servant, I forgave you for all that debt since you exhorted me. Had it not been necessary for you also to have mercy to your fellow servant as even I had mercy for you. And his master, being angry, handed him over to the torturers until when he should repay all that which is owed. Thusly also, my heavenly Father, do so to you. If you would not each forgive his brother from your own hearts. And in that spirit, Paul says, you must not destroy the work of Yahweh on account of food. Certainly, all things are clean, but are evil to the man who must eat in offense. If you must eat in offense, you should not eat, since your conscience is more important than your belly, and your brother should be esteemed even beyond either of these. Therefore, if your brother is offended, you must abstain. And Paul says, It is not good to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, 
nor anything in which your brother takes offense at or is trapped by or is sickened. And there are some, some minor differences in the manuscripts here, which I will have in the notes. The Greeks also made oblations of wine to their pagan idols. And the wine dedicated to the idol would be served in the temples. For that reason, Paul mentions wine here in accompaniment with flesh. Here's an example. Do you have faith? Have it concerning yourself in the presence of Yahweh. Blessed is he who does not condemn that in which he himself approves. And that was the lesson of Christ in the parable. In other words, blessed is he who is not a hypocrite. If one eats something prepared by an alien one day and refuses the next day or a year later, is he not a hypocrite? If one eats something marked kosher and refuses something marked halal, is he not a hypocrite? Do you think that the, the, the Jew, the demon the Jew really worships is any better than the demon the Muslim worships? If one lambasts his brother for not keeping the Sabbath on a certain day, yet the day upon which one keeps the Sabbath is not the day ordained in the law, is one not a hypocrite? Are you sure it should be Saturday? Are you sure it should be Sunday? I'll bet it's neither. So if you keep the Sabbath on a Saturday, are you going to upbraid your brother who wants to keep it on a Sunday? I'll bet you could be proven wrong. The best way not to be a hypocrite is not to condemn one's brethren over things which are not of the commandments of Christ, even if one cannot come to an agreement on the issues. From Matthew chapter 7, the words of Christ concerning hypocritical judgment do not condemn, in order that you would not be condemned. For with the judgment by which you condemn, you shall be judged. And with the measure by which you measure, it shall be measured with you. Verse 23. But he that makes a distinction, if then he eats, he has been condemned, because it is not from faith. And all which is not from a faith is an error. The Greek phrase, may krinon, does not condemn, may have been written as does not judge. And the same is true of the word as it appears in the Christogenian New Testament in Matthew chapter 7. We prefer the stronger translation in order to elucidate the consequence of such judgment as the word was understood in the original language. The word for judge also means condemn, to condemn in Greek. When you judge your brother, you're condemning him. Now sometimes, if he's breaking the commandments of Christ, if he's breaking those Ten Commandments, he warrants that condemnation. However, vengeance belongs to Yahweh. Paul tells us in those cases, and the model is the fornicator of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul tells us to put those sinners out of our community so that Yahweh 
will punish them. That's the model. As the Apostle James said in his epistle, in the second chapter, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. If one makes a distinction today and chastises our brother for eating certain food, if we have ever done likewise, then we have condemned ourselves before God. For the same reason, James continued by saying, For he that said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not kill. Now, if you commit no adultery, but if you kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. And kill in those instances means murder. So you speak, and so you do, as they that should be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that showed no mercy. And mercy rejoices against judgment. Discussing the law from which Israel was freed in Christ, which James refers to as the law of liberty, Paul summarized all of this by saying in Colossians chapter 2, in verse 16, Therefore, no one must judge you in food and in drink, or in respect of feast or new moon or of the Sabbaths, which are a shadow of future things, whereas the body is of the anointed. Let no one find you unworthy of reward. If you visit a Christian household and they celebrate a Sabbath on a Sunday, you should follow likewise. Even if you think the Sabbath should be on a Saturday, you do so because loving your brother is more important than the letter of the law under which all Israel has been condemned. Christ himself, quoting Hosea chapter 6, said, But if you had known why it is mercy I desire and not sacrifice, you would have not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Prince of the Sabbath. If you visit a Christian household, and they serve beef bought in the markets and marked kosher, perhaps not even realizing it or knowing the significance, then you should overlook your brother's ignorance in favor of enjoying his charity. But then again, perhaps your brother knows better than you that the blessing of a devil cannot really change the nature of the meat. However, if your brother is in your home, and objects to the so-called kosher meat, throw it away and eat the vegetables because you do not want to offend your brother. That's what Paul is teaching us here. If your path is guided in the understanding of faith and mercy, you will not be found to be a hypocrite. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night to see line, the devil and Satan. Praise Yahweh. And good night. Sunday afternoon, Christagania, Europe. It's coming.